Hey, I'm Elia Einhorn. Welcome to a very special edition of TalkHouse. This is the inaugural episode of the Macintosh For the Love of Music podcast. In this series, we'll explore the history of legendary American audio gear maker Macintosh Laboratory through conversations with renowned musicians and audio professionals. Macintosh has been hand-building the very best audio equipment in Binghamton, New York for over 70 years. Not only did they help create the hi-fi industry, they've forever changed how we listen to music. Even if you've never heard the name Macintosh, you've definitely seen their gear with its iconic blue watt meters and green glowing logo. It's been featured in numerous blockbuster movies, including The Departed, Ocean's 8, John Wick 3, and Knives Out, to name a few, along with hit TV shows like Elementary, Marin, and Law and & Order. Anyone who watched season two of Mr. Robot would have seen the incredible World of Macintosh townhouse in Manhattan, which in the show serves as the headquarters for Rami Malek and Carly Chaikin's characters. LCD Sound System's James Murphy has even created a custom DJ system called Despacio using over 35 Macintosh amplifiers. And their products can be found in the homes of many famous and influential musicians, both past and present. In this inaugural episode of the series, I caught up with former Grateful Dead electronics outfitter and renowned music gear creator, Janet Furman. Janet grew up in New York City, graduating from Columbia University in the late 60s with an engineering degree before moving to San Francisco and finding work with Alembic, the Grateful Dead's preferred recording studio and sound crew. Janet went on to record the Dead's live sets on multiple tours, as well as engineering sessions for other rock stars like Steve Miller. She then went on to found her own pro audio equipment manufacturing company, Furman, whose products are used in almost every studio and live venue around the world, and which we here at TalkHouse work with every day. Janet told me some amazing stories about working for Owsley Stanley, touring Europe with the dead and recording some of their most famous work, and even commandeering a helicopter to save a massive rock festival with Macintosh amplifiers. Check it out. Hey, Janet Furman, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thank you. Now, Janet, you grew up in New York and in the mid-60s attended Columbia University studying electrical engineering. How did you come to be on that path? Well, I had an older sister who aspired to be a scientist, and she was the valedictorian of my high school class, and she was kind of a role model for me. She wound up going into uh, biological sciences and got a PhD and did research, and I thought, well, I'll do something a little different. I wound up in electrical engineering, and um, in my senior year in college, I decided, you know, I don't really want to go to work for a big corporation and design computers or guided missiles or something. What I really want to do is work in the music industry because I was just so in love with rock and roll. And so uh, when I graduated, got my degree, I set out for California and started knocking on the doors of recording studios. And tell me, what was it about San Francisco in particular that brought you out? Well, the climate was certainly a factor, but I also, <laughs> you know, I loved what people called the San Francisco sound back then. It was mm-hmm. the Jefferson Airplane and the Sons of Champlin and the Grateful Dead and the whole Haight-Ashbury scene. And I thought that's what I really want to be a part of. It's amazing that you didn't have any experience as a musical engineer going out, but you did land a pretty plum gig. Tell us about how that came together. Well, everybody's got to start somewhere. And um, 
I did have some credentials. I mean, it's pretty darn unusual for a woman to show up at a recording studio, at least back in 1970 when this was happening, and um, have a degree from an Ivy League college in electrical engineering. I think they were kind of impressed with that, and they offered me a chance. And I started out really as a technician because my college education had nothing to do with audio. It was all about computers. And um, I had to kind of learn everything from scratch, but I was eager to learn and soaked it all up. And I had a wonderful role model there, too. There was, amazingly, there was another woman engineer who was there ahead of me. That was Betty Cantor, uh, later known as Betty Cantor Jackson. And she uh, she stuck with the Grateful Dead for her whole career and made so many wonderful recordings. And they call her Betty Boards now. <laughs> but when I first started out, I knew two engineers. One was male and one was female. So I sort of assumed that, you know, half the recording engineers in the world must be female. That is incredible. I, I love that that was your perception. <laughs> it wasn't really true. Right. Of course, it's still not true now, but uh, you were actually somewhat of a pioneer without realizing it at all. Now, the company that you ended up working for is called Alembic, a legendary company. They worked with some of the bands you mentioned, Jefferson Aeroplane, The Grateful Dead, and they sort of did a couple things, as I understand it, and I'd love your insight into this. They were, on the one hand, making their own equipment. On the other hand, they were, as they called it, alembicizing rock stars' axes. Axes and also amps. Yeah, I did a lot of work on that. Uh, it was a program that they developed to kind of ruggedize equipment that, you know, took a lot of hard knocks when it was being shipped all around the country or all around the world and handled by roadies. So we, we tried to ruggedize it and make it more foolproof, put more reliable connectors in, did things like add clamps to keep vacuum tubes from falling out of their sockets when they were equipment was turned upside down. Yeah, and, critical. And a few other things to make the sound a little more consistent and everything be a little more foolproof. So it was a program, and it was very popular, and we did a lot of that. And in the early days, Olympic wasn't making their own equipment. That came later. Now, one of the founders of Alembic is the brilliant engineer and LSD guru, Owsley right. Stanley, one of the early patrons of the dead. I know they lived at his uh, LSD factory for a while. <laughs> I understand that when you first started working there, he was still in jail on a drug charge. But what was it like working with Owsley Stanley? Well, once he got out of jail... He was just an ever-present presence. Um, he was always standing behind your back, looking over your shoulder and commenting on whatever it was you were doing. And he managed to do that to just about everybody. <laughs> and he was a person of strong opinions. I, I did get initiated into the, the Grateful Dead family by being dosed one time. Oh, my God. Tell us that story. <laughs> well, it was... After I'd been there just a couple of months, toward the end of the day, somebody broke out some beers and the crew and me were sitting around having a beer before we headed home and uh, somebody put some of that LSD into my beer. Oh, no. I don't know how many drops they put in my beer, but I felt it as I was driving over the Bay Bridge. I was pretty upset the next day, but I got over it. After that, you know, I was more accepted as one of the crew. So I think that was my initiation ritual. What a wild scene. 
what you've got to tell us about this this amazing tour that uh, you were on with the Grateful Dead in Europe in the spring of 1972. That's the tour where they recorded the hugely popular and for me a very formative album, a live triple LP, Europe 72. What was that experience like, Janet? First of all, it was a lot of fun. If you'd ever seen the the movie um, A Hard Day's Night about the Beatles being mobbed by crowds of screaming fans, you know, there was just a bit of that. Fans chasing them through the streets. Yeah, and uh, as a crew member, I wouldn't have really been exposed to that. More typically, uh, I was there to do live recording, and I would be sitting in um, a recording truck parked behind the venue in an alley connected to the backstage by a long snake and with a little fuzzy black and white TV monitor so we could see who was singing into which mic. So I wasn't too connected with um, the fans. But there was one time when uh, I missed the bus, the crew bus, Uh to go to a venue. I think this was in Germany somewhere. I forget which city. And the venue was all the way across town, and I was sort of stuck in the hotel, and I ran into Jerry Garcia in the hallway and uh, said, oh, Jerry, I missed the crew bus. And he said, don't worry, you know, you can come with me. So he got picked up by a, a limousine. Riding in style. So here's Jerry and I, just the two of us, pulling up to the venue, and there was a line of fans stretched all the way around the block waiting to get in. And this is like 11 in the morning or or so, and they're going to be there all day. And when that that limo pulled up to the backstage door, we just got mobbed by screaming (laughs) fans. It was really, you know, a moment out of a hard day's night. Somehow, I got to experience it. That was uh, something I'll always remember. That's amazing. Was it scary? Was it exciting? Was it a combination of the two? It wasn't scary. It was thrilling. Oh, wow. (laughs) Made me feel like I was a rock star, but really the attention was on Jerry, who deserved it. So I want to ask you this, Janet. You know, the dead are known for this push for exceptional gear, and that's exemplified in the wall of sound, that's exemplified in the way that they had their equipment alembicized. Was that push coming from the band themselves? Was it coming from their team, as it were, a management team or sound engineers around them? I would say the prime mover was Owsley. He was really the idea person, and he had everyone's ear, and he had some credibility. And as an engineer, what were the biggest pluses and minuses of working with the Grateful Dead so closely? Well, the enormous fan base and the loyalty of their fans meant that everything they did got a lot of publicity and a lot of exposure. So when they went out on a limb in the mid-70s with the wall of sound, I think that that began as an experiment, but it also uh, became extremely influential in a concert sound reinforcement forever after. And some of the concepts, for example, having a separate amplification system for each musician turned out to be impractical, but a lot of lessons were learned that made large systems possible and workable. For example, in a large venue like the stadium, you know, you might recall that when the Beatles went on tour in the 60s, and they played in big venues, baseball stadiums. The sound was just terrible. They just had a bunch of guitar amps on a little stage, and nobody could hear anything. Right. They would even say they couldn't hear themselves playing with all the screaming and uh, no amplification. 
Well, the world of concert sound reinforcement kind of grew up a decade later, and uh, the Grateful Dead and the Alembic people played a large role in taking the world down that road. Now, the wall of sound itself was enormous, and, and as stories go, it took all day for the crew to set it up, and, and teardown wasn't done until after 4 a.m. Right. How was that a realistic way to run a concert tour at that point? Well, it was crazy, and it was, <laughs> um, it was based on idealism and disregard for what it cost. We got to do it right. We got to do it as well as it can be done. And the sound was, was amazing because of each musician having their own separate sound reinforcement system. So there was no intermodulation, distortion between one track and another. The way the giant arrays of speakers were arranged in line arrays meant that the sound appeared to be coming from a point source that was a good distance behind the stage mm-hmm. so that the musicians heard the sound just the way the audience would, so there was no need for monitors. There was no mixing board. Each musician had a separate volume control. There was a volume control on each microphone. And there was a volume for each instrument amplification setup. And there were other crazy things like Phil Blesch's system was a quadraphonic. <laughs> you know, that means times four. He had a complete love it. giant system for each string on his bass. That is amazing. And you mentioned there, Janet, the idea that it had to be done right. I wonder what was behind that with the insistence on using Macintosh products for the core of the wall of sound? Well, Macintosh was the preferred amplifier. That was something that Owsley brought to the party. Not the only thing, but another important thing. Not the only thing, (laughs) no. (laughs) Absolutely not. But uh, they were not really intended for use for pro sound Mm -hmm. reinforcement. They were really uh, what I would call audiophile. At least that's how they were marketed in those days. But they had some unique features, like they had output transformers. Rather than having the output directly connected to the load, the speaker load, that meant if there was like an accidental short or, you know, you connected an extra set of speakers and dropped the impedance of the load, you know, you weren't risking blowing out the output stage. And that was something that happened a lot. So that made them a lot more reliable. It also made them a lot heavier. The design was top-notch. They were very low noise, so that just gave you more headroom. And we did have to do a bit of alembicization. One thing that didn't work so well for taking the amps on the road was having screw-terminal outputs, so we would replace those with dual banana plugs, and that was um, became the standard for speaker connections that were very reliable yet easy to plug and unplug. Wow. So we changed around a few things, but... Basically, we liked them because they were low noise and they didn't blow up. You know, I can tell you an interesting anecdote about the early days of the Wall of Sound. Please. When it was just getting started, and this is the biggest rock concert in the world at that time, the Watkins Glen Summer Jam of July 1973. Right. This was at the Grand Prix Raceway just outside of Watkins Glen, New York. That's right. Yeah. And um, unlike Woodstock, which I think was in 1970, three years before, that had 300,000 people. Watkins Glen had 600,000. It's amazing. People like to say that it was the largest group of people who ever gathered in one place at one time in the history of the world. I'm not sure if that's true. (laughs) 
It was uh, an enormous crowd in any case. And um, there were only three bands playing. That was something that really was quite different from Woodstock. They had 25 or so different bands. There were just the Grateful Dead, the Allman Brothers, and the band. Legends. Legends, but only three. So it was Mm -hmm. intended to be a one-day event. And I was there not to do live recording, but as the equipment tech for the portion of the sound system belonging to the Grateful Dead. And uh, that was actually Olympic's sound system, and they had just sold it to the Grateful Dead. But they were still taking care of it and maintaining it, and that was kind of my job. And um, the uh, venue was so large that you couldn't just have speakers up on the stage. You had to have towers that were out in the audience to bring sound to people who are further back. So they had the sound emanating from the stage. And then 100 yards further back, there were four towers. One for each of Phil's strings. (laughs) No, not really. (laughs) This this was before the wall of sound. And this is going to play into it. There were four towers, and then there were another 100 yards back. There were six more towers. But basically, the equipment on on stage, the main PA was the Grateful Dead's, and they allowed the other two bands to use it. But there wasn't quite enough stuff, and Phil wanted to do this experiment with the quadraphonic bass, and that would kind of become the starting point of the wall of sound. So it was determined that we needed four more big Macintosh amps. Five would be better. Oh, man. And you're in the middle of a field with half a million fans. That's right. (laughs) But in their wisdom and forethought, the promoters had provided a makeshift helipad. And so I was given the assignment of getting five more Macintosh MC2300s, which was their biggest power amp. And um, I had the use of uh, a helicopter and a pilot. Wow. And Sam Cutler, who was the Grateful Dead's road manager, formerly the Rolling Stones road manager, handed me $6,000 in cash (laughs) and the use of a helicopter and said, go get the stuff. Oh, my God. So, well, it was a weekend. And the Macintosh factory happened to be near Watkins Glen. Uh, The Macintosh factory was in Binghamton, not very far away. Especially by helicopter. So it was achievable to get there. So there I am in uh, a band t-shirt and shorts with $6,000 wadded (laughs) up in my pocket. And we're flying around, and I've managed to contact somebody at the Macintosh factory, even though it was closed for the weekend, and I explained the situation, and they put me in touch with the owner. He wanted to help, and he agreed to meet me in downtown Binghamton and take me to the factory and sell me the amps off the production floor. They were not boxed up. This is a grab-and-go situation. Yeah, so... (laughs) So we landed right in the middle of downtown Binghamton, and uh, normally helicopters don't land there. There's like a little <laughs> square in the downtown area. It's kind of ringed by high-rise buildings. So it's sort of a city park there? Yeah, and that was where we landed. And, um, oh, there's a big crowd gathered <laughs> to see what was going on, and people were photographing us. And I remember... Another hard day's night moment. It was. Yeah, there were flashbulbs popping. People stuck microphones in my face and asked me what was going on. And I tried to explain, but there wasn't much time because (laughs) the guy we had to meet was just leaving on summer vacation. He was there in a station wagon with his wife and two kids and a couple of dogs. And they were driving off to... To Wally World straight after this. (laughs) Right. Wow. So I climbed in the back 
and we drove to the factory, and he, he grabbed the five units off the floor, and I handed him the 6000 bucks. and went back to downtown Binghamton. Now we're in a, a small helicopter with two adults and five amplifiers that each weigh over 100 pounds. And that was a pretty big load for a helicopter that was made for two people. Oh, no. So, you know, I'm not a helicopter pilot, but... When you have a heavy load like that, I understand you can't take off absolutely vertically. You have to kind of climb on an angle, and which meant that we came really close to that ring of buildings around this downtown square. And I remember oh, just wow. being feet away from the edge of a building, Oof. and we just could have— <laughs> I mean, if we had another five pounds in there, we might have hit that building, but— I mean, it was kind of a moment that you don't forget, a near-death experience. That is incredible. And, and you made it back to the festival in time? Yeah, and when when we landed and I had the goods, you know, I got a huge round of applause. I was yes. a hero for, you know, five minutes. And Give this woman a raise. <laughs> so, so four of those big amps went into Phil's quadraphonic bass system, I mean, he already had the custom pickup made by Alembic that had a separate output for each string. So all he needed was the amplification. And the fifth Macintosh unit went into the main PA on the stage. So that was one of the earliest components of the wall of sound. And in the next year or two, it got further developed and, and full-blown. This podcast is brought to you by Macintosh. With Macintosh, customers have the ability to truly live their music. Handcrafted in Binghamton, New York, Macintosh's iconic blue meters are globally recognized as a symbol for audio quality. Since its inception in 1949, Macintosh has been powering some of the most important moments in music history, from presidential inaugurations to Woodstock, to the famous Grateful Dead wall of sound, and all the way up to today's Dispacio sound system. Macintosh has not only witnessed history, it's shaped it. To learn more about how Macintosh powered pivotal moments in music history, visit MacintoshLabs.com. I'm your host, Elia Einhorn. We are back with Janet Furman, legendary sound engineer and founder of Furman Sound. Janet, something I wanted to take a little bit of time to chat about with you is this amazing company that you formed. As I speak to you, I'm listening to our conversation through an HDS headphone distribution system. <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, a key part of what Furman Sound put out. How did you decide to form your own company, Janet? Well, the truth is uh, I had been working for His Master's Wheels and um, I got fired. <laughs> what? What happened there? <laughs> That's another rock and roll story. Tell us, please. Steve Miller and his band had everything to do with it. Uh-oh. He booked some time kind of at the last minute. And, and this uh, was a recording studio, right? Yeah, it was a recording studio in San Francisco. And um, I had a demo session, kind of a cut-rate demo session, booked with some friends of my own. That, um, and it was subject to being bumped if we got a full-paying customer, and that was fair enough. But I didn't get the word until the very last minute, and there were a lot of people involved, and it was a big band, and I wasn't able to get the word to very many people that the session was canceled. Oh, no. And they all showed up, and they were all upset, so I had to contend with that. And we were supposed to start recording at 8 p.m., and I was all ready to go. 
But Steve Miller and his crew didn't show up till after midnight. And oh my if I'd God. known that, I could have done my session too and right. not inconvenienced all those people. So by the time he showed up, I was in a bad mood. And I'd been up, you know, since early morning. And here it is 1 a.m. and we're just starting. And we didn't get along very well. <laughs> I think he was possibly intoxicated. I don't know for sure. But he was pretty grumpy himself. I mean, isn't he a joker and a smoker? <laughs> a midnight toker? Smoker and a joker. <laughs> you know. So uh, the next day, Steve Miller decided he didn't like our studio and decided he was going to finish his project. And his project was that song, um, Fly Like an Eagle, that became a huge hit. Oh, sure. That's what we worked on all night. It certainly became a huge hit. Yeah. So he wound up taking his business to our arch rival, the record plant, and <laughs> Elliot blamed me for that. And I, I think Elliot was right. It was probably my fault, you know. The customer is always right. I should have been more cordial. Uh, I shouldn't have been grumpy. I probably deserved to get fired. But <laughs> it, um, it was a kind of a turning point in my life. I decided, okay, well, I've had enough of being a recording engineer. I have an idea for a product that... I think might sell. I'm going to just try to develop my idea and start a company to make parametric equalizers for musicians to plug into. And nobody was doing that. I mean, there were parametric equalizers around, but they were kind of rack mount studio gear that, you know, you, you couldn't really use on stage. So I got going on that. I actually wound up renting some space from Elliot in the same building. It was a great location. He had a, like a little loft that was unused. Uh, so and, you hadn't killed the relationship. Yeah, not completely. Uh, Elliot really helped me out by <laughs> letting me use that space at a price I could afford, which wasn't much. And it was great because there were always musicians around and always people to show whatever I was doing. And before I had any products to sell, I kind of took in repairs and did guitar amp modifications and stuff just to get some income. I taught a class and recording studio techniques. After about a year, I got the parametric equalizer designed and in production. And was this what became iconic, the PQ3 That's from right. 1975? That's right, yeah. Wow, so you were working on that as you were sort of a gigging engineer, as it were, starting to build what would become firm and sound. That's right, yeah. And as I started to get some income from selling PQ3s, I was able to quit doing all that other stuff and concentrate on designing another product. And the company just kind of took off from there. Began by hiring a couple of assemblers and then hired a shipping clerk, then an office manager, and then a sales manager, and then hired another engineer and a few more assemblers. And by then we had a half dozen products and kind of started to take off. But it really took off in the mid 80s when we got into power conditioning products. That's really what Furman Sound's best known for is the power conditioner, the rack mount power conditioner with the pullout lights. And that turned out to be a really hot product and sold really well. And to this day, you see them everywhere where there's pro audio equipment. For sure. Got it here in the studio in New York right now. <laughs> the engineer in the studio here is nodding at me. <laughs> I know he's got some too. You've been part of audio now for 50 years. Tell me, how has it changed during that time? What are some of the things that have gotten better? What are some of the things that have maybe gotten worse? 
Mm. Well, one thing that's better is that the whole recording scenes become more democratic. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't need a recording studio that costs hundreds of dollars an hour, and that's in 1970 money, right. to make a, a record, to make something that might become a hit. You know, you can have a $10,000 investment in a home studio that's much more achievable, and then you have it right in your home. And uh, you can get damn good results that way. So it has made quality recording more accessible to anybody who's determined to have it. Definitely. It's also, it's been um, hard on the big commercial recording studios that have investments, you know, millions of dollars in hardware that did the same thing that can now be done with software. Mm -hmm. On a laptop. Yeah. Yeah, and we've seen some of those temples of sound shudder over the years. That's right. Janet, what do you think common listening practices like streaming music, using Bluetooth and aux cord connectivity, things like that, what do you think that that's done to the fidelity of music listening? Well, I don't think that people listen like they did back in the day. You know, you rarely see somebody sitting in the center of their living room with two big speakers, one on each side, concentrating on on hearing every nuance. I certainly don't listen that way. Most of the listening I do is either in the car or it's background music to my everyday life. It's playing as I walk around the house. I don't sit down and really listen to it unless, personally, I play bass guitar in a band and I might listen carefully if I want to learn a song, but most people don't do that. So I think that in an effort to cut through all that background noise, the sound of cars going by on a freeway, producers have just compressed everything to the point where... There's very little dynamic range in an -hmm. effort to just make everything seem to be as loud as it can possibly be. The loudness wars, as it's called. Yeah. You know, there is a segment of society, and uh, especially in the pro-audio field, that is alarmed by that trend and is very much opposed to it. But I, I don't see that anything is really changing. And yet, sort of as we're reflecting on this, I find myself thinking about my own home setup where on the one hand, I have a wireless speaker system. On the other hand, I have a really nice vintage setup in the front room with the big speakers you're talking about hooked up to a record player. You know, there's been this huge resurgence of vinyl, sort of a tactile and sometimes audiophile experience. And it occurs to me that there's always going to be that segment that really wants to have that beautiful setup that the Macintosh pieces, the the speakers that carry every nuance of the sound. Well, I think there certainly are um, people like you who really care. And I think there will always be people like that. And there'll always be a market for high-end audio equipment. Listen, before we let you go, I just want to ask you one question sort of out of order here, because it's just something that I wondered about myself in the lead up to our conversation, which is what were the Grateful Dead like as people? And what were they like as employers? (laughs) I think it varied quite a bit from individual to individual. I would put at the top of the list Jerry Garcia as being the most outgoing, friendly, easygoing rock star you can imagine. He he really, he was so nice to me. Years after I was done working for them, being part of that scene, I ran into him. I was coming back from a trade show in Chicago, and I was in the airport there walking to my plane, and along comes Jerry Garcia with Ken Kesey, and two of them. Oh, wow. And I wasn't even sure he remembered who I was, 
But he immediately spotted me and treated me like, you know, I was an old friend and introduced me to Kesey and invited me to come and hang out with them for a while while we waited for our planes. And I was really very surprised and flattered that, you know, he remembered, he was he was actually proud that I had started a company that, had, in a way, had been a spinoff from my days with the Grateful Dead. And certainly, I give the Grateful Dead a lot of credit for giving me the opportunity to have the experience to really understand the pro-audio market and mm-hmm. to develop the idea that launched the company. So it was just nice that Jerry was aware of it. He and Bob Weird did some endorsement ads for me and just in exchange for equipment. And that also uh, was was much appreciated by me. I would say as uh, employers, it was not like working for bosses. They never bossed me around. (laughs) You know, I think they just sort of expected that I knew what I was supposed to be doing. I never got any guidance from them. You know, maybe some of the other more experienced crew members, but not so much from the band. They were just busy. They were off in their own world. And I think that I got to know Jerry the best because mm-hmm. I was around him the most. I think my favorite, though, was Pigpen. Unfortunately, he died at a very young age. He had such a gruff exterior, but he was just a sweetheart. And I really enjoyed the little time I had with him and getting to know him and realizing that he was not the tough guy that he seemed to be, but wow. he had a, really had a warm heart and friendly smile for everyone. Oh, that's beautiful. Janet, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. It is just such a treat to speak to somebody who not only was there, but who made it happen. I really appreciate your time. I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for listening to TalkHouse's inaugural episode of the Macintosh for the Love of Music podcast series. Make sure to catch future episodes of the series to hear conversations with James Murphy, Too Many DJs, and more. And visit MacintoshLabs.com to check out the very best amplifiers, preamplifiers, receivers, speakers, and turntables being made by hand in Binghamton, New York. Our producers for this series are Ian Wheeler and Mark Yoshizumi. Janet was recorded by Aaron Tadina at Laughing Tiger Studios in the Bay Area. Katie Lau did additional engineering for this episode, and our researcher was Reese Higgins. Till next time, I'm Elia Einhorn. Peace. Peace.